Hi, this is Danny Morrison, and you are listening to this wonderful podcast, Dean at Stumps podcast. It's a little ripper. And Dino, I know he's missing the double Ds. If you please, Dino Duplessis, what a wonderful podcast. Get amongst it, listen to it lots. It's a ripper. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Thank you so very much indeed to Danny Morrison, who always has this incredibly amazing ability to put a smile on a face whenever you may be not feeling too good, whether it's in the commentary box or uh, the opening to a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. My name is Dean Duplessis and it certainly is good to be part of your uh, listening device again, whether, wherever you may be listening to this podcast. And I'm wondering in your part of the world, is it slowly but surely beginning to change in terms of the season? Is there that little bit of a nip in the air? Or is it getting warmer, depending on where you are? Well, of course, uh, we have a whole bunch of uh, good interviews, just in case you've uh, listened to the podcast for the first time. And uh, those interviews being the likes of two former captains, Michael Vaughan of England. Uh, We get into his mind and we have a bit of a chat about what it is like to plan towards the success of the 2005 Ashes that England, of course, uh, were able to regain after many years of being out in the wilderness. We, of course, hear from Sean Pollock as well. He's unwavering faith in God, but also everything else that he achieved on the field, off the field, and the incredible response of his family as well. Don't forget there's Tawanda Muyeye, a 19-year-old precocious young talent who has just won the Wisdom School's Cricketer of the Year, Zimbabwean born and bred, and uh, now has, I can't say permanently, but he is in the UK now, where he also has been, uh, well, he'll, he'll be going to university and uh, hoping maybe to play um, a bit of uh, cricket there as well, county cricket, before deciding what he would like to do. Would he like to become uh, a batsman playing for England, or does his heart still tell him that he should be playing for Zimbabwe? Right, so uh, this week's gentleman is, well, one of the legends of world cricket, let alone West Indies cricket. He played in 60 test matches, took 249 test wickets with a best of 8 for 92, and incredibly took 14 wickets in a test match, 14 for 149. And to this day, those are still the best match figures recorded by a West Indian in Test cricket. But before we get into, I'm sure, a gentleman who you already know, I'm sure you've already figured out who it is, let's have a bit of a listen to a message from the Zimbabwe Solidarity Trust. Hello, fellow Zimbabweans. This is Heatstreak, former cricketer, captain and coach of the Zimbabwe cricket team. Um, I'm talking to you on the Dean at Stumps podcast this week Um, and yeah Dean and I are good friends Uh, we have been for a long time obviously an avid cricket supporter someone who's always been there Uh, we admire what he's done for the game of cricket Um, and uh, yeah and Dean has thrown me a few questions he's asked me to answer Um, so here they go Uh, this first one is uh, what's my 
favorite sporting moment and not necessarily a cricket related one well i'll wrap that up in two um i was fortunate enough to watch liverpool play in the fa cup final against west ham many years ago it was a ripper of a game and and gerard scored the winning goal i think uh, liverpool ended up winning that 4-3 so that was a special moment being a zim uh, a zimbabwean and and bruce grubler the the famous Zimbabwean goalkeeper who played for Liverpool for many years was was someone I supported from a young age and hence why I support them um, and my next uh, favorite moment is going to be when Liverpool uh, win this uh, uh, Premier League uh, it's inevitable when they resume uh, that they will do it and uh, then hopefully all those Man United and Man City people who've been ripping us off uh, can finally keep uh, can finally keep quiet the second question is how did I get involved with the Solidarity Trust Zimbabwe, which is doing a lot of uh, work uh, for COVID-19. Um, yeah, I uh, felt that with all the time that we've got at the moment uh, being uh, under lockdown that I could do something positive, um, got involved. There's a few people that I know. Um, so I'm actually on two trusts, uh, that and another one uh, helping here in Bulawayo. So um, yeah, that's something that we've been, we've been working really hard to to try and fundraise uh using uh the business world and the private world to to try and finance getting some of our hospitals up and ready and and ready to to treat uh, and test uh people with uh with COVID 19 so hopefully what we do um as uh, as zimbabweans um can really uh, make a difference um his second uh going on to the third question do you believe zimbabweans are able to deal uh, with the pandemic without the help of the outside world. Um, yeah, look, obviously we do need the help of the outside world, but we've got to recognize that uh, they themselves are in the same boat as us. Uh, some countries probably more so at this stage. Um, so we do have to rally and, and show our national pride and, and get behind each other. Um, I think uh, Zimbabweans are very good at that. Um, I think we have, um, you know, we do have a, a very good uh, community uh, spirit and hopefully that will uh, really take us uh, through these uh, really tough times and we need that um, so um, we just got to keep uh, remembering um, you know all the important things you know make sure you know that we wear our face masks make sure we wash our hands make sure we keep that social distancing you know and and avoid um, you know avoid those those contacts that unnecessarily contacts you know luckily Zimbabweans are a very young country um, but we do have a lot of people who are very vulnerable to this disease and we owe it to ourselves and to them to make sure that um, you know we don't risk people unnecessarily his fourth question um, he said Zimbabweans are prone to rumors and fake news which can cause panic and fear what uh, would my advice be well firstly a lot of us are on social media and uh, often we forward things without thinking uh, I think it's important that um, you know we ensure that when we do get forwarded stuff uh, that we go through it and see there's a lot of good stuff but there's a lot of not so good stuff uh, let's make sure we um, you know we help and and we call people out if people are spreading fake news uh, make sure they don't uh, continue to uh, forward it on um, and and pass it on and and obviously to uh, understand that in Zimbabwe there is uh, ramifications legal ramifications that can happen if uh, if you get caught uh, passing on fake news so you know, I think for the good of people and the mentality and, and in the spirit of Zim, let's make sure we are responsible with that. And the last one was, um, 
Uh, to raise flagging spirits, what is your happiest memory playing for Zimbabwe? Uh, very definitely when we beat South Africa uh, in the 1999 World Cup to go through to the last six in the World Cup. Uh, very special uh, memories there and uh, those will last forever. Anyway, thank you. Um, uh, this is uh, the Dean at Stumps podcast. It's Zimbabwe's only weekly podcast. Um, you can su- subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Overcast or even your preferred podcast app for your weekly cricket fix. Even though there isn't much cricket uh, to talk about at the moment, uh, but uh, Dean does a fantastic job. Dean, thank you very much for inviting me to chat. Um, I wish you all the best and uh, let's all stay safe and responsible and let's make sure Zimbabwe uh, stays healthy. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. Thank you very much indeed. Heath Streak, former Zimbabwe captain, former Zimbabwe coach as well, who served his country with a great deal of pride as well. So, yes, that uh, is nice to hear that he's got involved with the 2019 uh, Solidarity Trust and everything that they're doing. And also in uh, the sense of reviving St. Anne's Hospital is absolutely astonishing. Well done. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to see such incredible initiative. And thank you very much to every single person who is involved with that. Right, so you heard me give you a bit of a clue as to who features on this week's edition of Dnut Stumps, or this edition of Dnut Stumps, as I've already said. 60 test matches that he played, 249 test wickets, uh, with uh, a best of 8 for 92 against England. He formed a formidable or he formed part of a formidable bowling attack which terrorised batsmen from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s. The likes of Andy Roberts, Joel Garner, Colin Croft, Malcolm Marshall, and of course this man. You would have heard him on uh, international television doing lots and lots of commentating, that wonderfully deep and compelling voice that reverberates through your living room without him having to really raise his voice, a very deep and good voice to listen to. And that wonderful accent, that Jamaican accent that he has, I am, of course, referring to Michael Holding, Whispering Death, as he's also known as. I was very fortunate, and I have to thank David Gower, another former great of England cricket, for making this happen. And what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful experience it was talking to this man. So, I uh, started off by asking Whispering Death how he's being able to occupy and entertain himself with the ongoing situation of the lockdown that has been experienced through most countries around the world. First of all, Dean, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Um, I can't say that I'm keeping alert and sharp. (laughs) I'm keeping alive and well and dealing with what the restrictions are where, where I am. But, you know, I am pretty much accustomed to being on my own a lot of the times. You know, even when I'm working, I or go on tours to different places. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes when I'm in England, for the four months that I do spend there, at the end of a day's play or at the end of a day when I when I get back to the hotel or I get back home, if I am actually at my home in England, I am alone. So it's not really totally foreign to me. It can be a little bit boring, yes. Sometimes you get up, get up in the morning and you wonder how you're going to feel the entire day. But it seems to pass. You know, there are much worse 
conditions to be under. I have a tele television, I have internet, I have radio. You know, I can go outside my, my home, the weather is, is beautiful, so there can be worse conditions. Yeah, tell us a bit about the area where you live. I mean, so a lot of us know that you um, obviously were, were born and bred and played for Jamaica, um, but is, is that where you still are? Well, right now I am in Cayman, in the Cayman Islands, in Grand Cayman. Right. My wife has been here. She has had business here. She has had different reasons for coming here apart from business, but she basically now almost lives in Cayman, and I, I am here now in between jobs. I came back here after doing the South Africa tour, which was in February, and I've been here since then. And the Cayman Islands is just like most of the other Caribbean islands. It's pretty small. It has about 62,000 people in, in total. Goodness. It has similar weather to the rest of the Caribbean islands, like Jamaica. It's not that far from Jamaica. It's about a 45-minute flight from Jamaica. The big difference with the Cayman Islands to most of the Caribbean islands is that the Cayman Islands is still under British rule. It still falls under the British flag. It's, it's an overseas territory of Britain. You know, most of the other islands in the Caribbean, you know, they have sought and gotten their independence. But Cayman still applies under the British rule. That's absolutely fascinating. And, and isn't it also quite fascinating to think that uh, the Cayman Islands, uh, their, capa or their capacity of 62,000 people, or their population, should I say, of 62,000 people still falls a good 38,000 or so short of the capacity of the MCG? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, a lot of the islands in the Caribbean you know, Dean, when we had the World Cup and they decided that they needed to build all these big stadia, some of the stadia in some of the islands, the capacity was greater than the population of these islands. Goodness. So, you know, that's just to show you the size of a lot of the islands around the Caribbean. Jamaica is the biggest English-speaking island, of course, but that's bordering on three million people. But then you start going down from there. <laughs> Trinidad and Tobago, I think, is the next physically biggest and then you keep on going and you get to places like Nevis which is a pretty small island it's associated with St. Kitts they say Nevis and St. Kitts but you know that's just the dynamics of the Caribbean and I sincerely hope that one day I'll be fortunate enough to tour the Caribbean, uh, even if it's not with the Zimbabwe cricket team, but just to experience the hospitality of the Caribbean. It's something that uh, has always Not been... a bad place to, go to visit, Dean. Yeah. Not a bad place. Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful, if you'll excuse the pun, sights and sounds and smells. So uh, uh, it's something that uh, is on my bucket list and that I hope to achieve. So um, let's let's start off with uh, talking about you and catching up with this wonderful man who has warmed the hearts of so many spectators and frightened, frightened the life out of uh, batsmen as well back in, in the day. Um, your nickname, Whispering Death, how did that come about? Well, that was given to me by Dickie Bird. And initially, I wasn't even aware of it. It's another journalist who told me about it, that Dickie Bird had christened me Whispering Death. And of course, I went to Dickie and asked him about it. <laughs> and he, he told me, yes, he, that is the nickname that he had given me. And of course, then I decided to use it on one of my books, the first book that I wrote with Tony Koja. That was the title, Whispering Death. 
So just to confirm, uh, so Dickie Bird, obviously a, a very popular and well-known test umpire, and he would have been umpiring. And so when you came in with your long, lengthy run-up, he wouldn't have heard you approach the crease. And uh, obviously you used to bowl death like rockets, which is how you got that beautiful and uh, somewhat scary name, Whispering Death. Yeah, well, that was what Dickie was telling me, that, you know, that the whispering came from the fact that when he was umpiring, he had to keep on looking back because I used to have a pretty long run. He used to keep looking back to see if I was actually on the way in because he couldn't hear when I was coming. And so I said to Dickie, yeah, but maybe that was so, but what's the death all about? He said, okay, you didn't kill anyone, but you could have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would have loved to have been able to have followed the West Indies when they were at their height, at their peak in the 1970s and mid-1980s. But there were two things. One, I was a bit young. And two, obviously, nobody around, you know, nobody had satellite television in, in those years or really had, would have had yeah. the, the internet where you could have listened to a ball-by-ball radio. So what a shame that I never got to witness the West Indies when they were at their fearsome best. But the most remarkable thing, Mikey, there were so many remarkable things about you, is that Initially, am I right in saying it? You you didn't really, not like so many cricketers, you didn't start off with aspirations of becoming the fast bowler that you were. So that wasn't really something that you, um, I suppose, did from an exceptionally young age, was it? Well, I played cricket from a pretty young age. I, at no stage of my life, early, my early life, that is, that I thought that I wanted to become a professional cricketer or bowl for the West Indies or anything like that, Dean. Those things just happened by chance as time went along. I enjoyed playing sport. I was a member of Melbourne Cricket Club from birth because my father was a member and he immediately registered me when he realized that he had another boy. So I was immediately registered at Melbourne. But those days at Melbourne, they played soccer. Right. Ball, they played cricket, they played a bit of table tennis, they played all different sort of things. But growing up in that environment, I got a chance to play a lot of cricket because eventually Melbourne became basically almost a cricket club only, no, nothing else. And by the time I got to the point where I could actually be on a cricket field, say, you know, in the range of 10, 11, 12, that sort of thing, I used to travel with Melbourne Cricket Club in the, out into the rural areas of Jamaica. And I would get onto the team because these were fun games. These, these were what we would call curry goat matches. And they were called curry goat matches because of the fact that most places that we went to in the rural area, you got curry goat for lunch. <laughs> so it was fun. It was frolic. You know, Melbourne being a well-recognized club in Jamaica, we were invited to a lot of different bauxite companies and a lot of different clubs in the rural areas. And we would just and we would go down there on a Sunday in particular, and it was a good day out. Melbourne had quite a few well-established, experienced cricketers. They had a couple of Test cricketers around at the time when when I was a young man going going with them. Arthur Barrett was playing for the West Indies, or I just about started playing for the West Indies. Um, there was another fellow by the name of Bruce Wellington, did not play for the West Indies, but he played with Jamaica and Orthodox left arm spinner. And these two guys taught me a lot, but there are lots of other guys. You know, there are lots of other senior people at Melbourne. Some of them didn't play for the Jamaica or the West Indies, but they were good cricketers who were people that could guide youngsters. So I got a lot of tutoring as a young man. Not coaching, like going into the nets and telling you left arm here, right foot there, that sort of thing, but just general tutoring and talking. 
That is fascinating, and 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 I would imagine that that put you in extremely good stead because, of course, then in 1973, as a as a young young teenager, you made your debut for Jamaica, and um, two years later, yes. you were you were on the way to to Australia. Uh, and you'd been picked for the West Indies team. You'd only played five matches, though, which is quite astonishing. So what I wonder what the selectors, you know, sort of envisaged and said, we need to take this youngster along. He's only played five games, and he's still very young, but there's something about him that we really like. Well, I think they just recognize that I had a bit of pace. Because when, when I played for... Jamaica at age 19, I was at school and I was doing very well playing in our local schoolboy competition. I took a lot of wickets and people recognized that I had a bit more pace than any of the other schoolboys that year in 1973. When I first started playing for my school in 1971, I think, or might have been 1970, we had some guys in my school that were a lot, lot quicker than me. And even when I played for the Jamaica youth team, the on a 19 team in 1972. There was a fellow called Seymour Newman that was quicker than I was. But Seymour Newman was a very good athlete and he chose that path instead of playing cricket. He was a good sportsman as a matter of fact. He played football for his school, he played cricket for his school, he did athletics and, and he chose athletics because those days, football and cricket didn't really have too many prospects of taking it too far. And he got an athletic scholarship and went to United States and he chose that and that's why I became more prominent as a fast bowler. I'm not going to tell you that Seymour Newman would have been a better bowler than me if played for West Ham because no one knows that sort of a thing. Of but he certainly was quicker than quicker than I was. So when I started playing for Jamaica at age 19, they saw a bit of pace in me. I was raw. I, you know, I didn't know too much about fast bowling. I was raw and Two years later, Clive Lloyd decided that he wanted me in the West Indies team pretty much as a backup. You know, when you think of the names that I toured Australia with, there was Andy Roberts, there was Van Bernholder, there was Keith Boyce, there was Brendan Bernard Julian. So I didn't go to Australia thinking, or I don't think even the selectors or Skipper Lloyd thought that, okay, he's going to break into the final 11 on this tour. I think I went there pretty much to learn. But again, as a young man bowling in Australia on those pitches that encourage fast bowling, I started to develop on the Figaro. At his pace, let me get in, into the team you know, reasonably sharply. But again, I didn't do brilliantly on that tour. I played five test matches and got, and got 10 wickets. So it was a matter that I was an immediate success. And yet your captain and your selectors showed faith with you because a year later, off you went to, uh, to England. And, and that was an, a, a very interesting tour because uh, there you, you took, I believe it was 28 wickets, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, in the series. But an astonishing thing happened there, Mikey, is that you took 14 wickets in one match. And, and again, I speak under correction, but that still remains the best uh, for a West Indian in a test match. 14 for 149. Would, would, that, would that have been your career best of 8 for 92 in, in a single, um, in, in, in an innings? 8 for 92. Was that the best then? Yes, yes. Um, I think as far as a test match is concerned. Those are still the best figures for our West Indies fast bowler. Possibly bowler, I'm not too sure. But I know as a fast bowler, those are the best match figures. But it didn't take a year 
you know, deal. I didn't, it was nine years later I went to England because we came back from Australia after, after being thrashed. And immediately we were thrown against India in the Caribbean. Right, right. And we beat India in the Caribbean. And then that summer in May, went, went, to, went to England, which is what, less than six months after we came back from, from Australia. And things started to blossom then. I played the four test matches in England, got the 28 wickets that you, you referred to. But having taken 14 in one test, you know, that brings you down to 14 in the other three. So I had an excellent test match and a pretty okay series. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is absolutely astonishing. One thing that springs to mind, though, is that um, nine of your 14 wickets in the test match, you got through bowling batsmen. Now, that is very unlike, it is not synonymous to West Indies bowling in the 1970s, because, you know, in those days, you certainly, because of the, the formidable attack you had, you didn't have to worry about pitching the ball up and looking for reverse swing or whatever it was that you'd get your wickets. You would normally would bounce batsmen out. What, what was that all about in, in nine wickets being bowled at the Oval, by the way? <laughs> well, before I even explain that aspect of things, Dean, I think it's a fallacy right. that people are repeating that West Indies fast bowlers those days, all they did was bounce people out. Because our, our statistician at Sky just last summer revealed some statistics to myself and Nasser Hussein that even I wasn't aware of, of the number of wickets that the West Indies fast bowlers in that era got out bowled LBW or just caught in the slip cordon. And it was a high percentage that were out bold and LBW. And I even remarked to NASA, who was shocked. We were on commentary at the time, and NASA was shocked. And I said to NASA, jokingly or sarcastically, oh, yeah, yes, NASA, the stumps were a lot taller those days. So people just keep on thinking that Western is fast bowlers kept on bowling bouncers in the 70s, 80s. That's, that, that is not, not true. But getting back to that test match at the over, that was a very, very flat pitch. The ball hardly bounced above stump height. So there was no chance of you getting people out hooking, cutting, anything like that. You had to either hit the stumps or hit their pads in front of the stumps. And even some of the edges wouldn't even carry into the slip cordon. If you look at the scorecard, you realize that over a thousand runs were scored in the first innings alone. Goodness me. West has got over 600 and something runs. England got over 400 runs. So it just, just shows you how flat the pitch was. So if you weren't pitching the ball up and bowling fast enough to beat the defenses of the batsmen, you weren't going to get a lot of wickets. And, you know, when you're 22 years old and you have some pace, you can do that. But it's not just about pace, though, is it, Mikey? One of the attributes um, is the fact that you ought to be strong and and pretty fit as well, I would imagine, in order to sustain the pace. So uh, give us some of, of an idea what make the attributes of a really consistently good fast bowler, because uh, often we've seen, you, you know, glimpses of, of sheer brilliance from a fast bowler. But in order to maintain the consistency of a Michael Holding or a Wakai Yunus or a Kirtley Ambrose or Andy Roberts or any one of the, the wonderful bowlers that we've watched on our television sets, listened to in our radio sets, what, does a, what makes a really good, consistent fast bowler, other than practice, of course? Well, first of all, I have to admit that on that first draw of England in 1976, I wasn't as fit and as strong as I became later on as far as fast bowling is concerned. You know, 
I think I was getting to peak fitness and strength in the 80s, say 81, 82, that sort of time. That's when I was getting to peak because during World Series cricket, which started in 77 and ended in 79, we were assigned a trainer come physiotherapist who pretty much trained himself to be a physiotherapist. He was more a trainer than anything else. A fellow by the name of Dennis Waite in the West Indies World Series cricket team. And he is the one who got that West Indies team extremely fit and, of course, strong. He devised exercises and we did a lot of running to strengthen our bodies. And that is when we fast bowlers really became fit. And that is what you need if you're going to be a a fast bowler that's going to have a reasonably long career. And especially these days with the amount of cricket that these guys are playing. In my day, we didn't play as much as they are playing now. First of all, we didn't have, we didn't have the three formats. And secondly, we had specific seasons. These days, you don't have a cricket season. And you can look anywhere in the world and there's a cricket match going on somewhere in the world these days. That wasn't true in the 70s and, and, and the 80s. But what is required if you're going to be a successful fast bowler and have a pretty long career, is body strength. And I'm not talking about you not know, going to the gym and lifting weights and looking like Mr. Atlas. I'm just talking about being strong, developing your muscles in the various parts, parts of your body and doing a lot of running so as you have stamina. That is important to be a fast bowler. Forget the, the training about bowling 20 overs in the nets or something. That, that's just developing your skill. If you're not strong enough to go into the nets and do all that bowling, it won't matter. You have got to be strong, you have got to be fit. Um, Mikey, I, I want to talk about something that I was able to listen to um, and because of the way you and your fellow players described it, it was even very easy for a person who is totally blind, such as myself, to follow uh, and, and to appreciate, was Fire in Babylon, the movie that explained the story of the West Indies cricket. And the, it, it left me feeling so many emotions in a short space of time. I was brought to the point of tears, and I have no point admitting that in the way that you as human beings were treated in Australia. I felt anger, but then I felt incredible jubilation and, and happiness for the success that you had against uh, you know a seemingly no one situation where you received a barrage of incredibly horrible and hostile abuse racial abuse mm -hmm. terrible things by australian crowds and i would imagine even players as well just just tell us about i mean obviously you did explain it but tell us a bit more about that time of your life were there times where you ever where you thought you know what i'm not enjoying this anymore i'm not going to do it or did what the people said to you inspire you to push yourself that much harder well it, that did not just happen in australia you know, Dean. It, matter of fact that that happened in, in england quite a, quite a lot you know we had various experiences in England where that was concerned, where people in, in the crowd would shout things. And, and similar in Australia, people in the crowd would shout obscene things. I have said it before, I'll keep on saying it. I, am ne I was never ever abused on the cricket field racially by anyone, whether it's Australia, England, anywhere in the world. I've never, I don't know if in my era, any of my teammates can say, yes, this person, said this, made this derogatory remark, racial derogatory remark, because you'll have people that will pass remarks that are not racially derogatory or racially biased. Right. They'll, they'll say things, but 
as far as I'm aware, I'm not aware of my teammates receiving it. And I know as a fact, I never got any racial abuse on the, the cricket field. But as I said, you go down the final leg, you go down the third man, you are feeling close to the boundary edge and you hear people pass remarks. As a matter of fact, in England, 1976, we used to get letters. You know, in, you go to each county ground or each test venue and there are a pile of letters waiting on you at the ground because they know you're going to a specific venue. So they mail the letters there. And a lot of them are just nice, friendly letters asking for autographs or asking for some favor or something. But then you'd get the odd one that is telling you to go back to where you came from and the trees that you're you're accustomed to and they would write in the on the, the page slanted, you know, not within the lines because those days take exercise books had lines to help you to write within the lines. They would slant the writing in and out of the lines to pretend that kids are writing this stuff. But kids ain't gonna write some of the stuff that they you would see. So you knew exactly where it was coming from. But those were the days then, you know <laughs> the world has progressed, but we have moved on. I'm not going to tell you that things are perfect now, but they're a lot better now in, in that regard. And when it was happening, we didn't worry about it. You know, we went out there as a team. We were enjoying combat. We were winning. That made us feel proud. And we wanted to make Caribbean people, wherever they were living, to feel proud of what we were doing. So we didn't worry too much about that. And sometimes you'd get something and you'd show your teammates and you'd laugh about it. We didn't, we didn't let it disturb us. That's incredible. It's such an incredible attitude to have. And um, gosh, I don't even really know what to say about that other than, you know, just to commend you and, and your team. But anyway, back to matters on the field. Uh, I mean, it, it it must have been unbelievable to be a part of the the fast bowlers that you had to work with. Joel Garner, Big Bird, who uh, was such a had such a big part to play as well. Andy Roberts, wonderful fast bowler. Colin Croft, who, who also made his presence known, and I had the pleasure of working with him in the commentary box, which is a great deal of fun as well. You know, I mean, I, I just wonder what it would have been like as a batsman of the opposition to try and find some form of respite because you would have one incredibly aggressive fast bowler uh, after another coming at you. And I, I wonder how batsmen were able to um, to deal with that. You know, I mean, I, I remember you talking about, for example, two batsmen who handled the pace bowling pretty well, both of them uh, being from England. Graham Gooch, obviously former captain, and then Alan Lamb, South African-born and, and England, English players. But you wouldn't have had too many batsmen who really took you on and, and, and done so consistently, I would imagine. <laughs> well, you, they weren't, as you said, they weren't consistently successful against us. We, but we had some batsmen around the world who came out there and gave us what you know, back what we were throwing at them. They they were good enough to take us on at times and to get get their runs. Um, Alan Lamb, that name that you mentioned, he's the only batsman that played against that particular team in that era to get three centuries in one series. Wow. No other batsman did that. You know, he, he was a fantastic player and he had a great series in that, that particular year. But it, there are a lot of other batsmen around the world that, you know, you know when you're lining up against them, you're coming up against some class and you have got to be able to produce your best. 
to get on top of them. But as you mentioned earlier on, when you have four fast bowlers, it makes life just a little bit easier for all the bowlers because the batsmen know that they can't just afford to see off one and wait on the other. Because whatever is coming next will just be as ferocious, will just be as good as what they just combated against. So it makes life a little bit easier for, for all the bowlers concerned. And perhaps that is the reason why the wickets were so well shared amongst the fast bowlers of that era. Batsmen knew they had to make runs. They couldn't say, okay, I'm going to see a holding on Roberts and score off Garn and Croft. That didn't work. So holding on Roberts coming on first had as good an opportunity of taking wickets as Croft and Ghana when they came on later on. The drawback to that as a group of fast bowlers was that we didn't get a lot of second, third and fourth spells. <laughs> By the time we get to that stage, there were 10 wickets already falling. You have to think about getting wickets in the second innings. But there were positives and negatives. But we enjoyed it. We had, you know, great friendship, great camaraderie amongst us. And then, of course, Malcolm Marshall joined the fast bowling ranks not much later. He came into the West Indies team about 1980, not into the final 11 immediately, but he came into the squad around 80, and very short time he was in the final 11. He was a, he was an amazing cricketer, was Malcolm Marshall, wasn't he? Because, I mean, he was a, would I be right in saying that he was a genuine all-rounder? I am a little bit more sceptical about the all-round thing, you know, Dean. I... I see a lot of people being described as all-rounders that I, when I think of what an all-rounder should be, I, I just say no. I don't say too much publicly, but I say to myself, no, you can't call that person an all-rounder. An all-rounder, in my opinion, is someone who can make the test 11, either as a batsman or a bowler, or you hear, hear about wicket-keeping all-rounders, make the team as a wicket-keeper or as a batsman. These people that are bowlers who occasionally get the, a, a few 50s. They're they not all rounders. Right. I have six test 50s. There is no way anyone can look at me and tell me I was an all rounder. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. But I'm uh, I, one cricketer who I'd like to mention before we get back to you, who I would have liked to have seen play for the West Indies, but he um, unfortunately, well, I, he played his cricket obviously at county level, and and he played for what was then known as Free State in South Africa, Franklin Stevenson. Now, again, you may correct me, but uh, in my opinion, that's one of the better all rounders who never got to play Test cricket. Surely that would have been a genuine all rounder, or is that again? Uh, not not necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case, again, in my book. Right. But Franklin Stevenson came, it was around in that same era when the West Indies had all those so many fast bowlers. He, he couldn't get into the team. No, when, I'll tell you, somebody that had a better chance did play a few, a few test matches and would, would perhaps would have played a, a, quite a lot more if... But for a transgression in Pakistan, when he got suspended, Sylvester Clark. Uh, yes. No, he was a genuine fast bowler that could have played a lot more test cricket for the West Indies. Franklin Stevenson, good cricketer. Very good cricketer. But he, I would not put him in the team ahead of Collis King. Right. Right. That is fascinating, just to get into the mind of Whispering Death. Um, now, Mikey, where, where, when you look at West Indies cricket right now, I mean, I obviously, like I've already explained, was not able to follow it when you and the team were at your height. But I still have very fond memories of the West Indies from around about 1992, 
when I started following international cricket, probably until the late 1990s, and even even in the late 90s, that that very disappointing tour of South Africa, where South Africa won the series, the, the Test series five nil, and they won the one day series six one. Already then, we we knew that the West Indies were in trouble and in disarray. But there were some incredibly good performances now and then, weren't there? I remember the uh, this, the tour of Australia in 1992, for example. Uh, the wonderful performance by Curtie Ambrose on two occasions, the 6 for 34 against South Africa uh, in Barbados in 1992 stands out. And, of course, when England was skittled for just 46 in 1994. Were, were those glimpses? of the West Indies of the late 70s to mid 80s when we saw Ambrose and Welsh bowl as well as they did. Would that be compared to or close? I don't like comparing, but were they similar to um, performances that you and the rest of your fast bowling team would have put in in, in the 70s and 80s? Definitely, Dean. Ambrose and Walsh were two great fast bowlers that Wesley produced again. But I go back to what I mentioned earlier on about the fact that in our day it was four. If Ambrose and Walsh, Walsh rather, had another two guys of similar quality coming right after them, that that West Indies team would have been even more dynamic. And that was still a very good West Indies team. The West Indies team that went down to South Africa and got thrashed test matches one day games was not a bad team when you look at the players that went down there. Yeah. But because of the problems that they had before they even got there, they, that was not a team down there. That was a collection of West Indian players. And there's absolutely no way the results, the numbers was a true reflection of the ability of that West Indies team. But if you remember the, the big furore before they got down there, they went back to England and Nelson Mandela had to write them about it. All that would have affected the team tremendously. Yeah. And that's one of my greatest disappointments, that that West Indies team did what they did before going to South Africa and then performed the way they performed in South Africa. And, you know... When I look back at it, I'll, I'll never forget the fact that Nelson Mandela wrote begging them to come to South Africa. To, just come. We'll sort out whatever differences you have with the West Indies Cricket Board later on. But And they refused. I don't know if it was a team decision or the captain decision or who, whoever made that decision. I just could not fathom how someone like Nelson Mandela could write to you asking you to do something. If Nelson Mandela wrote to me and asked me to climb Mount Everest, I would be trying. Yeah. It's very I don't. I just could not understand that one. And of course, I wasn't on the tour. I didn't go. I wasn't working. Nothing like that. But my understanding is that he never went to a game that the West Indies played. I might be wrong. So I might have got the wrong information. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that was the disappointment that the man had and believe me I, that will live with me forever yeah, how you can do something like that to Nelson Mandela uh, absolutely I, and I think there'll be millions of people who will agree with you on that one Mikey and um, and where, how do you see the West Indies cricket now? I mean, it's, it must be a very sad topic for you to talk about, um, you know, because just as you, you see somebody who's beginning to make his way, be it a young fast bowler or a promising batsman, you must have the fear in your heart that as soon as that talent is discovered, 
unfortunately, that talent will be tempered by uh, the fact that he could be lured away to to uh, something else, other either other than, than cricket, which which pays a bit more than what the current West Indies board are able to pay, or unfortunately into an area that you and I both dislike intensely, and that is all these T Twenty tournaments around the world. Yeah, well, there are not other avenues that those guys will go down. They will stick with cricket, but as you said, being the temptation or the problem is that they will end up in one of those 2020 tournaments that you referred to. You know, there's so much money involved in these 2020 tournaments. It is difficult to tell the youngsters, turn your back on the 2020 tournament and just concentrate on playing with the West Indies because the West Indies obviously haven't got the funds to keep them playing for the West Indies. But what I'm happy about currently is that it seems to me that more and more of the West Indian cricketers are now willing and wanting to play for the West Indies. Sure, they'll have to be compromises here or there to allow them to earn the big bucks in some of these 2020 tournaments, but it seemed to me that they are now willing and happy to play a lot more for the West Indies because some of these guys just turn their backs totally on the West Indies. And you can't, if that, if that is going to be the situation, we'll get absolutely nowhere. But I think there's light at the end of the tunnel right now where the relationship between the players and the board is concerned but since the change of the administration. And I am more optimistic. And uh, just to conclude, do you think we will ever hear Mikey Holding brought or commentating on a home series again? I don't remember when the last time was that I heard you in the commentary box in the West Indies commentating on a, a home series, which saddens me very, very much. No, you won't hear that again. Well, you you hear you people tell you never say never, but I can't see that happening. I haven't got too many years left in the commentary box, Dean. And I don't see that happening in the, in the near future, which would, it would have to. Because if I'm not going to be working many more years, it would happen to happen in the near future. And I don't see that happening. What a fantastic, fantastic human being that he is. Michael Holding, also known as Whispering Death, bringing us to the end of Dean at Stumps. Thank you so very much indeed for listening. And uh, the next time you hear from us will be when we uh, catch up with another very good player who uh, was undoubtedly one of the, undoubtedly one of the most stylish left-handers probably ever to be produced by England. And that, of course, is David Dower. But until then, thanks for listening and stay safe. Been listening to D Net Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 